Top half comes from uh, Twente this week, where a highly placed farmer defense... No, not farmer defense force. No. A highly placed <laughs> boer... <laughs> from farmer's defense force, they're not running this election, No, I hope. no, no. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, uh, yeah. not, they're not spreading shit outside the, in the Binnenhof. Well, they, they are spreading enough shit, but uh, mm. not in the mm-hmm. Binnenhof, no. It's Friday, October 27th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Speed Record Flying Holder. Uh, and with me today is uh, Gordon Derek. You're back from, uh, from, from Brexit land. I'm back from uh, Brexitania. Yes, they let me back in. Silly fools. <laughs> It took you, it took you, uh, took you quite a long time, but uh, but you you managed to uh, to arrive on time. Yeah, I had um, to I had to drive through Belgium, which is uh, oh, okay. never a pleasant yeah. experience. Well, I have to say, I mean, the Belgians are kind of fixing their roads. It's, yeah, uh, they are. It is getting better. Yeah, I think definitely actually now that you uh, when I drive down through Belgium and to the UK, uh, the worst roads by far are now at the end of the journey uh, once I get across the sea. Um, oh really? Uh, oh, oh God, yeah, absolutely. Why yeah. is that? Are, are, but, but, are extinction rebellion? Everything's, uh, everything's falling apart in in, in, in Britain. In oh, in Britain. Oh, yeah. The no, other no, way so, no. So when I get when I get across the sea at the end of the journey into England. Well, yeah. as long as the Clifton Suspension Bridge uh, remains uh, erected, I'm I'm happy. So, so yeah, that, that's still standing firm. You don't, okay, I've got nothing good. to worry about there. Uh, I have no idea where I was left. Um, oh yeah, I, I wanted to mention. Yeah, the Belgians are uh, are good at uh, improving their roads, especially. Yeah. In motorways primary roads i mean as long as you you stay there it's fine yeah especially in flanders in but yeah uh, d- don't go to the secondary roads because that's still dreadful um yeah you are a contributing editor dutch news and a campaign kickboxer yes uh, uh let's start with your job title what's that about well we're both referring to the same um person politician um, which is the, <laughs> uh, the, the 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 leader of the faith day the justice yes. minister dylan Silgers, who um, yeah, th- th- this week's uh, been uh, doing all kinds of uh, PR stunts for the start yeah. of the campaign. And one was that she made a, a video with uh, Rico Verhoeven, a famous Dutch kickboxer. Right. Um, yeah. She was in the gym. She was in the gym with him and uh, uh, throwing punches uh, against the gloves. Got to say, they weren't actually. She wasn't actually hitting. They weren't actually hitting each other because he's about three times the size of her. Yes, but, even uh, though <laughs> at this, in this in the first shot of that video, it appears that she is uh, slightly taller than uh, than Rico Verhoeven. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, then uh, they zoom out and it is revealed that she's standing on a crate. Yes. Um, I have to say, he uh, did a similar video with uh, Mark Rutte before uh, yeah. like they, they did a stare down and um, there was no question that um, Margrethe was taller than Rico Verhoeven there oh so, my uh, bad yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so uh, uh, but it was an ad uh, of NOC NSF the, uh, the Dutch uh, Olympic Committee yeah. I don't understand why they uh, especially now see, seem it is uh, think it is okay to basically uh, yeah have a have a Ad like propaganda for propaganda um, one of the political parties, yeah. Yeah, so that was a bit odd, uh, yeah. but yeah, it is. Uh, th- they did mention the importance of uh, of sports and a healthy lifestyle. So yeah, I mean, it, it is a good cause, but uh, the timing seems a little bit off. Yeah. Uh, or or NSA NSF has organized uh, similar videos with other political leaders. I don't know. Um, I don't think so. Uh, but no. Otherwise, it is uh, it is a bit odd. I think. Uh, are we going to see any political leaders speed skating this time? Yeah, so. <laughs> 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 Political leaders in sports videos, it always goes wrong somehow, doesn't it? 
So. Mm. Yes, even though this one, yeah, it was slightly. This one was, yeah, this one was actually one of the better ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Although, yeah the, the, and obviously crazy. there was a reference to when she was throwing the punches, she was saying, I'm not so good with my left. So always on message, <laughs> Dylan. Yeah. Yes. Um, she was also uh, on message when she uh, was uh, flying in uh, Woerden uh, this weekend. Yeah. Uh, the Day organized a town hall meeting. Um, Coincidentally, only with party members and with uh, uh, with their own MPs, so not really a, a town hall meeting. Uh, yeah. But afterwards, um, they all went out in water to uh, to flyer and to uh, yeah, spread the VVD message. But um, uh, an uh, RTL journalist who was present there noticed that uh, uh, Dylan Yesokus only handed out uh, flyers to two people who <laughs> happened to stand on on, on 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 the side of the road and yeah. then stepped into a car and drove off. So he um, he noticed that. This was uh, probably the shortest flyer flyering uh, uh, stunt ever. Yeah. Um, and it he he checked it and it turned out that the two guys he uh, she she approached were indeed um, uh, party members of party voters. So it was all prearranged. Um, yeah. They didn't use any of the fo- the favor. They didn't use any of the photos or the videos they shot in <laughs> in this uh, in this campaign because there was yeah already probably wise f- yeah probably wise yeah. because it was already ridiculed on on social media uh dylan yesterday did had a meeting with the french interior minister in amsterdam an hour later or two hours later uh, where she received the legion d'honneur so uh, she did have an excuse but uh, probably they could have uh, they they, they could have planned it and timed it uh, uh, differently i think yeah Um, so so she got the legion d'honneur did she then say look i've got all these leftover flyers here do you want them (laughs) (laughs) and those are right over uh, right over flyers i think yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's a real. Um, it illustrates how we've uh, how much we've had a shift of generations because the current prime minister is a man who still still till last year used a Nokia sixty two ten phone. When yeah. now we've got one with a we've got a potential prime minister with a TikTok account. That's how much we've uh, evolved. <laughs> Times are indeed changing. Yeah. And now talking about social media, yeah. um, that brings us all around rather nicely to uh, the uh, quite uh, yeah uh, explosive OPEF of the week. Even though the, the political party affiliated with Anis Anonymous social media account was from the past. So, uh, yeah, this, yeah, this brings the past and the future nicely together, I think. Yes. Um, the ophef of the week comes from Twente, where a highly placed Boer-Burger-beweging candidate was exposed by press agency ANP for maintaining an anonymous troll account on Twitter. Jasper Rekers, who is uh, number 13 on the BBB candidate list... Unlucky his- number. Uh, unlucky number indeed. He <laughs> used this anonymous account called Verzet op Links, uh, Resistance. I think it should, it, it literally it is uh, a Resistance on the left. That, yeah. That's what his account uh, is named. But I think it's meant to be Resistance to to the left or against the left. I think so. Yeah. That's what it's uh, meant, I think. Uh, and with that account, he sent hundreds of insulting tweets during the COVID pandemic to scientists, journalists, and politicians some of whom his potential future co-workers. And he called them awful things on that account. He compared virologist Marc van Ranst with Marc Dutroux. Politicians, uh, yeah, Marc Dutroux is a um, uh, a convicted pedophile, Belgian pedophile. Yeah, and Marc van Ranst is also Belgian. Yeah, that's uh, that's the link. Uh, Politicians with uh, high-ranking Nazis, and uh, he often attacked journalists as well. Especially D66 politicians appear to have been on his radar, as well as uh, then-health minister Hugo de Jonge. Rekers, uh, yeah, I can can name uh, all the the things he, he called them, but it was all... 
He said he asked to Hugo de Jong if he had a one-way ticket to, um, uh, was it to, one-way ticket to Auschwitz or Nuremberg? Sorry, Nuremberg. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. And, and that, of course, uh, refers to the uh, comments by Forum for Democracy politicians that uh, uh, Hugo de Jong should be sent to a tribunal. Yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, so we, we can repeat everything he said, but they were all awful and it was all Nazi yeah. related. So that, uh, that that says enough, I think. Yeah. Um, Reker's uh, secret online past was exposed by ANP and they found 900 tweets over a period of two years in which the number 13 made comparisons to Nazi Germany. Reker's is uh, also an ICT teacher and he changed his personal account to the troll account at the start of the pandemic. But if you... If you search his old account, you 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 also get linked to his new anonymous account. So that was a bit a, a, a bit stupid. <laughs> he for wasn't this. very good at covering his tracks. No, yeah. not at yeah. all. He just used his old personalized account, yeah. uh, and he initially denied he was behind um, uh, uh, Frisette op links. But after ANP stepped uh, to BBB, he came clean and promised not to take his seat if elected. Yeah. So he resigned from the candidate list, but that's technically not possible because the candidate lists are already finalized so that means that if baby bay gets 13 votes uh, 13 seats or more in the general election he um is entitled to that seat uh, yeah. and also if someone steps down from the baby bay uh, 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 faction in the tweede kamer he will always get asked do you want to take up your seat so yeah yeah pretty bad screening from uh, from the boerburg beweging um not good not good at all not good yeah. at all yeah, and of yeah. course now he's uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's uh, going to have a chat with his employer. I mean, it's, it's really yeah. uh, act of a terrible stupidity. I mean, I'm not sure what employer his employer will be less impressed with um, uh, the, the messages he sent or the fact that he just uh, showed terrible awareness <laughs> of IT security, <laughs> given that he is an IT teacher, right? So yeah, which one a, will be worse? Yeah, which one will be question. worse for him? Yeah, but you know, if, if he hadn't uh, stood as a candidate for elected office, this would never have come out, and you've no. got away with it. And now he's in all kinds of trouble. So, silly yeah. boy. Yeah. Silly boy, indeed. And yeah. yeah, I mean, you spent your, you spent also some time on on Twitter, of course. And s- yeah. often you see these these troll accounts uh, saying horrible things. And often you're wondering what kind of person is behind this. Well, yeah. yeah now we, we 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 see what kind of person it is, and he just looks like a normal guy, right? And yeah, exactly. Yeah, you would never uh, have guessed. Yeah. And he's a teacher on 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 a on a, on a, on a um, uh, HBO school. So yeah, yeah. So strange. Yeah. So he's won the prize for the first um, social media related um, resignation of this election campaign. He's probably not going to be the last. Mm, no, no. Is he not? Uh, oh, no, well, from yeah. a candidate. I know there's. Uh, oh, that's Omsi right. Spokesman, Omsi spokesman, of course, uh, yeah. had to resign over something he tweeted to about Caroline van der Plas. That's right. Yeah. And this all reminded me of a other politician who had an anonymous secret uh, account. Uh, Geert Wilders was. Uh, yes famously exposed a couple of years ago to also have an anonymous account not uh, he didn't use it to troll it but uh, yeah his official account yeah he doesn't follow anyone so he needs another one to uh, to keep track of what's happening on social media and uh, with this account he was uh, exposed to uh, to follow 13 Donald Duck related accounts that's right yeah. Uh, yeah. as well as um, uh, the, the official Efteling uh, account he is of course uh, famously a fan of uh, of that theme park in Brazil and uh, porn star Kim Holland, uh, ah. which was also something that um, uh, raised some eyebrows. But uh, yes. yeah, he uh, he <laughs> took it up uh, positively. He just complained that he now he had to uh, make a new secret account. Uh, who, who now he was exposed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's also got an account for his cats, hasn't he? That's, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
This week, the election campaign was officially kicked off by the first televised debate with four leaders of the major parties. Peter Omzicht finally released his party manifesto, but still doesn't want to name his candidate for the Torenger. Prime Minister Mark Rutte traveled to Israel and Palestine to discuss the Gaza conflict with the leaders there. The Dutch Safety Board released its third and final report on the government's handling of the corona pandemic. Another dramatic game by the Dutch cricket team, while Ajax finally sacked its head coach. And Dierhard Blijdorp has a special guest from across the globe. The election campaign has officially been kicked off on Sunday with the first in a long list of televised debates. In an extra broadcast of TV program College Tour, VVD leader Dylan Jessogus, there she is again. Uh, she had some time, uh, she had some spare time, she was yeah. finished uh, flyering so she could... Yeah, she could throw a few, few more side swipes. Yes. Uh, GroenLinks PvdA-leader Frans Timmermans, Caroline van der Plas of de Boerburgerbeweging en Pieter Omzicht of their freshly founded new social contract sat down in the auditorium of the Vrije Universiteit in Amsterdam to answer questions from students. The party leaders, of course, did their best to emphasize their differences, but uh, yeah, interestingly enough, they also uh, expressed where they think they have some common grounds. Uh, so mm. that was refreshing. It was an unusual uh, format, I think, for for a Dutch TV debate, right? Usually, they stand on the podium. Um, yeah. They, they, they have some sort of uh, button for uh, for a green or a red light to expose if they to to to, to express if they are f- in favor or against something. Or sometimes they even have a cowbell or something. Yeah. Well, a cowbell for the BBB would have been good but, um, <laughs> yeah, but they can interrupt each other don't they there's, there's all kind of rules about this this is much more informal isn't it and they're, yeah. they're sitting down which is a big and they uh, were sitting down difference. yeah that's yeah. also uh, yeah. that was also new yeah. um Timmermans uh, took a hard stance against nuclear energy. He said that the Netherlands isn't the right place for uh, nuclear um, power uh, installations and um, he also said that there hasn't been a single study that shows the need for nuclear energy. Yesogus immediately jumped on that comment. She said that she would be glad to send her him some uh, some studies that uh, that uh, that show uh, exactly that. She also had a um, uh, the day later, I think, right? She uh, she uh, tweeted uh, to him that uh, yeah she needed his uh, his email address so she can send uh, send uh, all these studies to him. Um, Timmermans also said that he is confident he can find a uh, solution for the nitrogen crisis together with the Boerburgerbeweging, even though Van der Plas immediately said that she doubts that as long as um, his uh, left-wing parties keep framing that cows stand in the way of housing. Do they say, do they mean that literally? Like there are like herds of cows yeah, standing, standing in front in of the, uh, on the, in, yeah, in the fields where they want to build houses? Yeah. <laughs> literally and figuratively, I yeah. think she meant it, yes. Um, Analysts uh, said that Pieter Omzicht uh, did very well in his first televised debate. It is, of course, his debut as a uh, as a uh, political leader, and he told students that he feels uh, closest to GroenLinks PvdA, uh, but also uh, to BBB when it comes to financial security. On immigration, he has more affinity with the VVD. So yeah, he basically said, "I stand in the middle. I can yeah, <laughs> I can work he together." He said, "I agree with everybody." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm everybody's um, pal. In the days before the debate, Omzicht was criticized for not having uh, published his party manifesto yet. How can you debate something if we don't know what, mm-hmm. stand, what your positions are? Yeah. But he uh, managed to get the spotlight by announcing that uh, the manifesto will be released the next Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, that, that's right. It was uh, it was released uh, on Tuesday. Yeah. He- 
He again declined to say who would be his party's candidate for prime minister, but he repeated that uh, he isn't interested in the job. You said there that uh, Rach is performing well in the debate. I kind of thought he came across as quite defensive. Um, he didn't. Um, and yeah, he seemed a bit annoyed by some of the questions, uh, especially the ones about um, when's your manifesto coming out. There are, there are a couple of those. Um, that, expla- that, that plays exactly... Uh, 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 to his to his uh, uh, image, to his uh, to his general to the image the general public has of him. So I think, and that's a, a, a part of his appeal, right? He is he is an independent person. He um, yeah. he uh, he swims uh, 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 against the political current uh, if necessary. I think that uh, it just plays uh, exactly uh, into his hands. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you're right. That was wh- how he appeared. But it, that's what people like about him. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, and also, um, yeah, I think it was uh, it was quite a, um, a, a sort of uh, what would you say? Yeah, it wasn't a really um, a, a confrontational debate no. in that sense, was it? It was uh, very much uh, the only thing was uh, when um, Timmermans was was pinned down a bit on the nuclear power issue, and yeah. all the others uh, said that they were, they were in favour of nuclear power, and Timmermans said quite passionately he was against it. But I thought Timmermans uh, came across uh, fairly well as well, actually. And again, he, he was Franz Timmermans, so yeah. some people absolutely can't stand. Him. Some people think he's uh, going to be the savior of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the next Dutch government. Um, so you know he's quite a, he's somebody who inspires, I think, quite strong opinions on both sides. And uh, I think he will have uh, validated both of those points of view, probably. Yes, definitely. Uh, Caroline van der Plas. Um the, the impression was that she was uh, yeah, she was a little bit tuned off or something. She appeared uh, yeah, perhaps a little bit tired. She was uh, much quieter than she would usually be. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she responded uh, the next day, on, or actually two days later, also on Twitter with a video where she sort of reviewed her performance. And she also uh, 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 yes, um, gave some counter arguments to, to what has been said by other, uh, by other politicians. It felt a little bit like... You know, sometimes you are in an argument and then uh, uh, at night you you lay in bed and you think, oh, I should have said that. Or it, it, it's, it felt a bit like that. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it wasn't, uh, uh, it didn't come off as particularly strong, I think, from her. If she, uh, if she uh, had to, uh, had to think two days about uh, counter arguments. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. No, I think yeah, she was probably the, the weakest of them. And again, like, I guess because nitrogen is retreated as a, uh, as a major issue. Um, yeah. It, it, she's just not on, uh, so much on 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 on, on ground where she feels stronger. No, I think that's a reflect as well. Um, yeah, but, but also I think that because Omzicht hadn't published his manifesto and he wasn't going to be drawn on the contents of the manifesto, he wanted to keep this cards close to his chest. It ended up being one of those quite incestuous um, uh, the ha- discussions they have in the Hague about who's going to go into coalition with who, yeah. which uh, which gets quite tiresome sometimes. So, yeah. 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 Uh, so hopefully in the next debate, uh, I think there's one coming up in RTL on November the 5th, I think is the next one, um, possibly. It's so uh, hard to anyway. keep track of them all. Yeah, but it, 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 the, the, the three major candidates are having a debate on November the 5th, I know, and then I think there's a wider debate with 10 parties yeah. on the 12th. Obviously, we're going to continue, you know, we've got like a, a continuing series about the 15 biggest parties uh, for our patron subscribers, so if you're not a patron subscriber, uh, sign up and you can uh, find out from us what all the parties stand for. Um, Which parties are, are we going to discuss uh, this 
week? Yeah, in this week's uh, one, we're doing uh, three. Um, I hope that you remember. But apparently, <laughs> <laughs> we're doing we're, we're, yeah, we're doing sort of three parties that start as outsiders. Um, we're doing Forum I- for Democracy. We're doing um, the the SBA, the Socialist Party, and we're doing New Social Contract. Ah, New Social so Contract. Peter Olmsted. Party. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so all that talk of the parties. Uh, what do the polls look like? Yeah, the polls uh, show almost no uh, difference than uh, than the last uh, last week's poll. Uh, we still have this uh, mm. three horse uh, race coming up. It appears um, VVD, NSC, the GroenLinks PvdA alliance remain on the lead. VVD uh, is polling at 27 seats of the 150 available. Uh, they are narrowly followed by a new social contract with 26, while the GroenLinks PvdA alliance comes at 23. Uh, the differences are so small, though, that the three parties are virtually at the same level. Uh, the fourth party in the poll is uh, the far-right PVV with 18 seats. Oh, what, what was interesting, by the way, mm. uh, the four parties that were invited for the uh, coalition tour debate, um, they weren't the largest parties in the polls because otherwise v- the PVV would have been invited. Yeah. Uh, instead, uh, they, the, the, the rationale was these were the leaders that had been on the Collegia Tours uh, uh, regular TV show uh, this season, but right. there was a fifth uh, politician also on the on the on the show, and that was uh, Esther Auerhand of the Partij voor de yes. Dieren, and she wasn't yeah. invited for this debate, so uh, mm. didn't really make sense there. Uh, yeah. their explanation but okay yeah they've been a bit arbitrary with the yes. anyway yeah. um, so the PVV 18 seats and the baby baby we just mentioned them is uh, only projected at 12 seats well again that's a major win f- uh, compared to the one seat they currently have in the Tweede Kamer but well four they've got four seats now uh, yeah three four defectors. seats yeah. but they were elected with one seat yeah, in, yeah. The, in the Tweede Kamer yeah um, but yeah a major a difference uh, compared to the what was it uh, uh, over f- 30 seats they had been uh, polled at some point. Yeah, well, they so had they got 16 in the Senate, which obviously is yeah. equivalent to 32 in the trade economy, which is yeah. quite as big. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, um, they are they are uh, slowly um, but steadily, uh, yeah, re- being reduced. <laughs> um, yeah. Hopefully for them, uh, they will 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 win only twelve seats. Otherwise, they will have. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, so they have a problem with, with the, the, the number thirteen candidate. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, all parties, uh, all other parties are below 10 seats. Uh, and much can change, though, because the latest poll shows that uh, 23% of voters are still floating. They have absolutely no idea who they're going to vote for. Uh, but only 20% are absolutely sure about their choice. So that means that 80% are still likely or uh, 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 can possibly change their uh, yeah. d- their vote. Um, so, um, yeah, still some... Um, uh, we can still uh, expect some some major changes in the in the coming weeks. Yeah, um, it's still also there's still very much uh, a lot to play for, definitely. Yeah. But, but it, look, it looks as if these three parties are in front. The only thing is, I mean, Geert Wilders does seem to be creeping up a bit. Um, yeah. yeah, in that Wilders way, he's I think start the campaign he was looking at about 14, 15 seats, and he's now up to eighteen, which isn't that far behind. Um, the Kuhn-Links uh, combination actually, um, and also yes, uh, the uh, now that. Uh, uh, yeah, and and the the election campaign is now well and truly underway because, of course, uh, the uh, politicians uh, don't have to worry about their day jobs for a few weeks. That's right. The uh, Tweede Kamer's campaign recess has started yesterday, or actually a couple of uh, hours before uh, 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 earlier. Then uh, we are recording this on Friday morning, and uh, they had been in session until Thursday night. Yeah. Let me see, three thirty. So yeah, they had a long night uh, in the in the plenary chamber. 
Uh, MPs held their final debates uh, well into the evening yesterday. And uh, yeah, as I said, they spent most of the night voting for the last bills, amendments and motions. Uh, many familiar faces will not return to the political arena after the election, uh, such as uh, SGP leader Kees van der Staaij, who has been an MP for 25 years, uh, as well as PvdA leader Artje Kuiker and former CDA leader Pieter Heerma. And of yeah. course, uh, uh, members of the cabinet has also announced their departure from politics, Rutte and Sigrid Kaag, for example, but they remain, uh, yeah, they, they, they remain, uh, they, they stay on as minister as long as there is uh, no new coalition yet. Yeah. So with Case Van der Staaij has been an MP for 25 years. Who's the shortest sitting MP? This was fun. Uh, this was uh, this was pretty fun. Yes. Um, D66 D MP went on maternity leave on yeah. Uh, Tuesday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Parliamentary session was still uh, going on, so uh, they brought in a new candidate. She was sworn in on Wednesday afternoon, and that means that she, uh, yeah, is uh, an MP for one and a half days, uh, uh, effectively. Yeah, p- plus um, three, plus three hours because they went on past midnight on Thursday, so she got right. bonus. She got bonus three hours. She yeah. got a bonus I hope she's uh, three hours. Overtime. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, she isn't the shortest MP ever. That was uh, in, I think it was 1911 or something. Some yes. some guy uh, was an MP for six hours, so uh, she she didn't break the record. <laughs> and technically yeah. speaking, she still remains an MP until the new uh, parliament is installed and that is uh, December 6th so she uh, is uh, an MP for one and a half months instead All right. of, uh, so, yes, so she resigns on Pakistavond so yeah. that would yeah. be off Pakistavond right. for her she'll, <laughs> she'll have her seat after part yes yes and she will get uh, one and a half month of, of, uh, of a nice salary and f- of course Vera Bergkamp the chair of the Tweede Kamer she will also uh, yeah, not return to, uh, to parliament um, yeah And on the same evening, uh, so while everyone was uh, in the plenary chamber uh, voting well into the night, one person was absent, and that was uh, uh, FVD leader Thierry Baudet. (laughs) He was uh, giving a talk at the University of Ghent, but he was uh, attacked there while he was entering a building. A man shouting no to fascism and no to Putinism uh, hit the far-right leader on the head with an umbrella uh, quite quite hardly. Uh, The incident was caught on video absolutely went viral immediately afterwards mm-hmm. and MPs and political leaders they all uh, from across the political spectrum they all uh, condemned the attack of course uh, yeah. Baudet is doing relatively well he has a uh, huge bump on the head he said but uh, <laughs> yeah he, he, he is worried about his, uh, his security and that this uh, uh, could happen uh, and of course uh, there were, are uh, security risks for uh, other politicians across the political spectrum as well um, but um it is the members of his party who uh, keep uh, uh, calling on violence and threats yes. for other politicians. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, is, um, it is a bit ironic that this uh, should happen to, uh, to him. Yeah, it's a bit of a cookie van eigen deeg. Yeah. So, yeah, with num- served up with an umbrella. Yeah, but, uh. <laughs> the most eagerly anticipated political event of the season has arrived. No, not the Forum for Democracy umbrella jousting tournament. But Peter Umsik's presentation of his new party's manifesto. Umbrella jousting sounds like a new activity on their Forum Outside Festival. <laughs> uh, thing, well, yeah, I just quickly changed the script, actually. I was going to mention the Forum for Dumb uh, oh, okay. um, Outside uh, <laughs> Festival, but I thought that was uh, more, more more topical. New social contract was set up to reform the system of government, prevent bureaucratic excesses such as the childcare benefits scandal, and ensure a basic standard of living for everyone. 
Omsic's Manifesto had a strong Christian Democrat flavour, combining cultural conservatism with a strong safety net and a revived sense of community. Disappointingly for seasoned Omsic watchers, it was only 80 pages long, and uh, quite short on detail, I thought. Uh, not too many uh, figures in it. Only 80 pages long? Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. We, we, we just expect it, it. We just thought it's taking so long because he just keeps writing, writing, and writing. Yeah, we thought it'd be like a 12-volume encyclopedia. You know, <laughs> you'd, have to sort of, you'd need a pickup truck to, to, to collect it. So, yeah, um, yeah 80 pages was uh, quite, quite restrained. Um, yes. On the minimum wage, for example, Omzik said a higher baseline income was one of the cornerstones of providing Bestandsicherheit, which is that buzzword we'll hear a lot during this election, or security of existence, uh, but he declined to say how much it should be. Uh, all he, mm. But he did note that the Netherlands is already in the top three for Europe's highest minimum wages. So I don't think he was planning to raise it by an enormous amount. Uh, That's what he and, often does, right? He compares yeah. the Netherlands with other European countries, uh, both uh, when it's uh, positive and both when it's negative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he's also said he's against universal free childcare uh, because yeah. the waiting lists are already too long. So he'll be going to abolish the plans to uh, to introduce that. Uh, Omsic wants to deliberalize the housing market by building 350,000 new homes, but through housing corporations. But he also says the rules and development should be relaxed and pension funds should be encouraged to invest in construction and housing. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so it's, it's quite a sort of quite a balance between um, yeah he he wants um, to involve uh, big investment funds, but but not in a free in a much more controlled way. Yeah, um, he doesn't want to, the faith idea of all being all for uh, having the free market to stimulate investment in housing. But Omsic wants to reel that back. He also wants to impose much tighter limits on migration to bring the net total down to fifty thousand a year. Now last year it was two hundred and forty four thousand, although that was boosted by the influx of uh, Ukrainian refugees. He, he he presented his his party manifesto on uh, on Tuesday. Um, the, interestingly enough, he he uh, didn't publish it uh, beforehand uh, to journalists. Uh, they had yeah. seven minutes before the, the the presentation started to to read through the eighty pages mm-hmm. uh, before they could start uh, asking questions. And he was asked, uh, "What do you think about this?" Because he was al- always so tough on on um, the uh, information position of MPs and journalists. And uh, 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 y- you keep talking about the importance of transparency, and uh, you always. Uh, um, uh, uh, complain that you get your uh, information uh, too early at, in advance of a debate, and he said, "Yeah, I was just uh, afraid of, uh, of of leakages." Uh, uh, right. we, 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 he had seen a similar thing with his candidate list, of course, even though it was his own mistake. He, he yeah, had, he had put it on the website before it was actually published. Um, so yeah, but but still, it was uh, um, it was a bit atypical of uh, of Peter Onset, I think. Uh, such uh, to to release it on such short notice. Yeah, it's notice. quite curious, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But again, I think he he's been very keen to uh, keep very tight control on this campaign. Well, that's, Definitely, that's something yes. that I think we saw in the uh, collision tour debate as well. That uh, we will, uh, uh, yeah, we will discuss that uh, at length in the uh, in the Patreon special. I think yes. his uh, his tactics in this uh, yeah. in this campaign. Yeah. Um, so he is always uh, very big on administrative reform. What what are his ideas about this? Uh, he wants to introduce a constitutional court uh, along the lines of, say, the U.S. Supreme Court, so the court can actually um, uh, d- d- test laws uh, against the Constitution to rule if they're constitutional or not, uh, which uh, they're, they're actually banned from doing at the moment. In, under constitutionally the, banned. They're constitutionally to... <laughs> banned from uh, to, from uh, yeah, checking uh, if laws are constitutional. 
Uh, curious. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he thinks that should be lifted. Um, he also wants to reform the voting system so that um, between 100 and 125 MPs are elected on a regional basis. There will still be a proportional system, which means that uh, you know we're going to get uh, even more small parties probably yeah. uh, elected to Parliament, uh, which is uh, what we really need here in the Netherlands. Definitely. Um, he doesn't want to have any more MPs, though. He says he, doesn't, he says he doesn't think he needs no more MPs. They just need to have more support to do their work. Yeah, that's uh, the interesting thing, right? He says yeah. the Netherlands is the only country in Europe that doesn't have a constitutional court, so we need one. But if you just look at uh, uh, how many seats uh, European parliaments have uh, yeah. compared to, to, to n- the number of people, the Netherlands has one of the smallest uh, uh, parliaments, yeah. and he thinks that that doesn't need change, even though, yeah, there's still a big European difference. So yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, a little bit of cherry picking here, I think. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and Omzik does want to restore Parliament's place as a main lawmaking arena. He do, he's critical of the way it's become uh, sometimes a rubber stamping mechanism for agreements that have been thrashed out uh, between the cabinet and social partners, like the new pension system that uh, Omzik has been very critical of. In fact, yeah. he's the only man who really understands it. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We need uh, to we need to mention here. I think that um, uh, both the parliament and the cabinet ha- are the legislators here in the Netherlands. Yeah. And usually, laws are prepared, of course, by uh, ministers and their large army of uh, of public servants. And uh, yeah, uh, I think ninety five percent of of all the laws that pass are prepared by the cabinet itself. So actually, the executive branch of the government. Yeah. Um, and um, it, that's why it's always a big deal when a uh, an MP has a uh, has written his own law right it's uh, yeah. it's uh, uh, it's always big news when 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 this passes and you always yeah. say that how much work it is to actually prepare it even though it is can be a, 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 a relatively small bill um, so yeah just imagine if uh, if they have um, if uh, if the new pension law for example had to be prepared by MPs they uh, uh, they've been working for like uh, so if you had 20 years just to get it all all, all done yeah, exactly, yeah. but I think yeah. that's one thing Omsic wants to do because he also wants to cut the size of the uh, the civil service or the size of the bureaucracy mm. he says there are too many people working in government ministries so I think he wants to restore the balance by saying the executive has become too powerful and parliament is not strong enough to um, uh, to, to check or, uh, or hold uh, hold the government to account so he wants to um, uh, yeah, to address that balance a bit um, uh, he also says that ministers and MPs uh, should observe a cooling off period after leaving office before they take up related jobs in the private sector and there should be a register of lobbyists which are things again that are quite common in other countries but we don't really have um, he wants to bring back the corrective referendum which was uh, such a success uh, when uh, we uh, <laughs> used it to vote on Ukraine's accession treaty with the EU um, and May the 5th Liberation Day should be a public holiday he thinks even though there's no such thing in That's the Netherlands a public holiday <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, That's my pet beef yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pet beef yeah. yeah and the king should pay income tax That's uh, Okay yes yeah. and uh, that probably means that his income will be increased to uh, so, so that his, uh, his effective income uh, will remain on the same So his, his net income will remain the same but uh, we'll get some of the king's money um, back mm. in the form of income tax yeah, will 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 Maxima um, get into uh, trouble with the Belastingdienst because um, you know she, she's a non-national. Well, she, she's not non-national. She's a, she is a Dutch national now, but she's a dual national. Yeah, she's yeah. A, yeah, she. I don't know. No, um, she is. You, you can't give up uh, Argentinian citizenship. Oh, really? No. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe they had made an exception for her. I don't know. We, I, 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 yeah, actually, I have no, no idea. Um, I think uh, the king, uh, 
probably has to uh, call his nephew, Prince Bernard Jr., to ask him uh, yeah. what you need to do uh, in order to set up a, a nice bank account at the Cayman Islands or something. Uh, uh, let's, to, uh, let's for- watch company. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I'm sure he, he'll be able to arrange that for him. Um, and you mentioned uh, migration. Uh, he wants to uh, a, a cap of uh, fifty thousand, uh, I believe. Yeah, that's net uh, migration. So that's net migration. Uh, immigrants, but uh, less emigrants. So ah, okay. See. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. can you give some uh, more details about his uh, his plans to to cut the numbers? Yeah, it's a big part of uh, OMSIC's program, and definitely one area where he leans more to the right. Uh, his plans on social welfare uh, are closer to the Pefidiahun Links Alliance, but he says average net migration was fourteen thousand between two thousand and two and two thousand and fifteen, but since then it's never been below sixty eight thousand. And he says hmm. uh, we'll need to build a city the size of Tilburg every two years to keep up with the growing population. And nobody wants a second Tilburg. No one wants more. Yeah, one Tilburg is already too many. Um, yes. It's notable he picks out Tilburg rather than Kroningen or Eindhoven. Uh, although mm. it could be worse, he could have said Almere. So, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that was probably just too horrifying an image. Yes. Uh, so he wants to reduce the numbers, not just of asylum seekers. Even though it, it, it could be a nice way to uh, uh, deter immigrants from coming to the Netherlands, if we say well, so yeah, you, you can come, but you yeah. have to live in in a second Almere. You have to live in Almere Bay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So he wants to reduce the numbers, not just of asylum seekers, but also labour migrants and international students. And he set yes, he set this target figure of fifty thousand. So uh, how's he going to do that? Well, first by setting up a two-tier asylum system so that uh, people fleeing persecution individually are treated separately from those who are fleeing war zones. Uh, Family reunions would only be for uh, the first group, uh, and even then it would be restricted to their core family. He also wants to introduce what he calls a Canadian-style points system. And all all parties in all countries uh, who want to restrict labour migration will immediately say things like Australian-based point-style system and things, and it never yeah. means anything. But yeah, but the idea is basically to kind of somehow align supply and demand in the labour market so we only get the workers that we actually need mm. in the country. He also wants to cut perks for expats, like the infamous 30% ruling. And in fact, in Parliament last night, on the, the, the late-night session, they actually did, uh, MPs did vote to... Um, uh, speed up the um, dismantling of the thirty percent ruling, um, okay. and that was a way of uh, paying for student finance. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I imagine we've we've covered that on Dutch news. Obviously, the thirty percent ruling is quite a big deal um, for our for many of our listeners uh, who uh, either will be eligible for it or if they're thinking of moving here, will um, uh, yeah, might become eligible for it. Um, so yeah, the, the changes to that. Uh, I think are in the offing, and there'll probably be more after the election. And student numbers um, under OMSIC's plans will be brought down by. By making Dutch the primary language of instruction and he has explicitly said that one of the reasons he wants to do that is to attract fewer international students um, because hmm. uh, yeah, apparently teaching them Dutch uh, would put them off of uh, coming to the Netherlands uh, and he wants EU students to have to work more hours before they qualify for student finance and fees for non-EU students uh, would be raised steeply. So currently, Dutch and European students pay €2,200 a year for tuition, uh, while international students pay anything between 6000 and 20000 And he wants to hmm. make that even higher. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but what he is tough on immigration, of course. Uh, that's uh, that's clear. Um, but what what is refreshing, I think, is that he realizes that immigration is a mixture between um, workers, uh, 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 students, refugees, and asylum seekers. Where other parties that are very critical on immigration always focus on the asylum seekers and on the refugees. So yeah. uh, I think this is, in, in that regard, it is refreshing, and uh, that it isn't uh, just uh, just aimed at. Uh, at the vulnerable uh, people that are coming here. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know if 50,000 is um, is a realistic figure. And it doesn't mean if you suddenly get a lot of asylum seekers, as we did last year because of the Ukraine war, does that mean yeah. you then have to you know, cut the number of labor migrants? What's the you know, business community going to say about that? Um, and I think it's still a, yeah, 50,000 seems like a, a pretty ambitious and I'm not sure totally realistic target. But um, yeah, um, like you say, it's, it's good that he does see uh, migration as, a, as an entire thing rather than just, uh, yeah, just talking about asylum seekers. Caretaker Prime Minister Mark Rutte traveled to Israel and the West Bank this week to discuss the Gaza conflict with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. In Tel Aviv, Rutte spoke for an hour with Netanyahu. Rutte told journalists uh, afterwards that he repeated that Israel has the right to defend itself against Hamas, but it must act wisely and minimize the number of civilian casualties on the Gaza Strip. He said they are also victims of Hamas. And he warned against the threat of a regional escalation and argued for a sustainable humanitarian corridor for the densely populated and cut-off Gaza Strip to bring in food, water and fuel. Rutte also uh, asked to get more clarity about the killing of a 33-year-old Dutch woman by an Israeli strike in the Gaza Strip on Sunday. And he visited the family of an 18-year-old Dutchman who was uh, kidnapped by Hamas in the attack on October 7th. Later on Monday, Rutte visited President Abbas in Ramallah. He spoke with the Palestinian president about the need for Israel to defend itself against Hamas, the danger of regional escalation and the need for a long-term perspective for Palestinians. And uh, yeah, there were also some uh, incidents uh, closer at home. A talk uh, at the Dutch Nazi transit camp Westerbork was cancelled on Sunday after threats were made against one of the speakers, activist uh, Wahab Hassou, who came to the Netherlands as a refugee at the age of 17, said on social media he and his family had been threatened and that the safety risks for the audience were equally important in taking the decision to cancel the event. Asu was due to talk uh, about the genocide against Yazidis, an ethnic minority in Kurdistan, targeted by Islamic State, uh, and he was supposed to do that together with Emi Dropmenko, whose family was killed by the Nazis in World War II. Later in the week, a Jewish school decided to close its doors again because of security risks, and the organizers of a silent march through Groningen in commemoration of Kristallnacht has cancelled the event, uh, not because they had received threats, but as a precautionary measure, they uh, feel it is uh, unsafe because of current events mm. to uh, organize the silent march. Yeah, just a, yeah, really concerning is seeing the ripples uh, this coming out now, you're seeing rise in reports of uh, abuse, uh, anti-Semitism online, but, but also it's become just too dangerous to talk about genocide, war, the Holocaust, uh, you know, yeah. which is, uh, I think, a very, very concerning development. Definitely, yes. It's that time again where we pause for a minute from catching up on the week's news to say a moment of thanks to the people who make it possible. And that means you, the generous patrons, whose donations keep this podcast rolling and mean we can spend the time trying to help you make sense of the election campaign, the wild highs and lows of the Dutch cricket team, and the odysseys of stray turtles. Mm -hmm. All that coming up later. 
recently um patron of uh, so they've changed the way they collect their donations um and it's uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not entirely happy with it but, you know it's their platform so they make the rules and we just have to go with it um but it's now they've changed the, the membership structure so that we've we've had to set up uh, a number of tiers of membership so I don't really like discriminating between our patrons based on how much they donate because people have all different reasons why they want to or donate the amount that they choose or you know some people can afford more than others and I just tend to feel that you know patrons are welcome however much they want to or how much they can afford so we've got four tiers they've all got the same benefits um, and uh, you are more than welcome to become a Kinderdag level patron for one euro or one dollar a month uh, we'll be very very uh, uh, thankful for, for your donation but if you are willing and able to support us a bit more there's absolutely nothing to stop you choosing one of the other three levels uh, like the Afslaut Dag Zeeslaus Eimauden and Hochtekordel <laughs> all our patrons will still get a shout out to say thank you the chance to ask a question and access to our bonus content the only difference is that Hartekordel uh, patrons do get an extra vote in the end ah. of the year Ophef Awards show, uh, yes. which uh, is a notoriously corrupt contest, so you might uh, <laughs> want to consider yeah, whether you know you you, you want to uh, Im- improve your chances of influencing the outcome by buying yourself an extra vote. Basically, um, <laughs> on the other hand, you might conclude it doesn't make any difference because a certain person always conspires to rig the result anyway. Yes, but there we are. But there's a new membership structure, so if you're thinking of becoming a patron, uh, go over, have a look, and um, sign up. We'll be delighted to have you. This week, we have two new patrons to thank, Megan Wallace and Deborah Gibson-Smith. Uh, Deborah says uh, I've, she's lived in the Netherlands 28 years and uh, recently became a Dutch citizen. Can you guess why? Oh, congratulations. After 28 years, though, why would a British person hmm. want to become Dutch suddenly after 28 years? What could have changed? I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, no, hang on. She's put a note here. It says uh, Brexit was a major factor. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was yeah, just yeah. Uh, maybe she, she uh, suddenly developed a craving for stroopwafels. <laughs> anyway, she says, I'm excited about being able to finally vote in the country where I live and pay taxes. Which is, yes, a thing that uh, I think we mentioned last week, didn't we, in the, uh, in the reader survey. And says that, says that, uh, that our analysis for the political parties is proving useful. So I'm glad at least uh, one person has uh, found some benefit from that. <laughs> She has a question about coalitions. Uh, she says currently there are four parties in the coalition, or they were in the. Um, is they the, were the, yeah. formerly, of course, the coalition's disbanded now. Uh, what's been the largest and smallest number of parties needed to form a government? Yeah, that's a fairly easy uh, question. And the smallest number of parties needed to form a coalition was uh, two. And the most recent uh, example was uh, Rutte's second cabinet, where he formed a coalition with his own Liberal VVD party and uh, Labour, who was uh, who had still had, what was it, 38 or... Th- I think they had 38 seats. No, Something like that, yeah, those are the numbers that uh, they can only dream of now. Um, so that was back in 2012. And uh, Rutte's third and fourth cabinet were four-party coalitions. And that post-World War II, that is, uh, that is the largest uh, coalition we had. Yeah. Even though, if you look at the polls now, we have three parties that poll around 25 seats. Mm. That technically means they can form uh, a coalition uh, perhaps with the fourth party, but yeah, it depends on how willing parties are uh, to, to step into a coalition and if they can find enough common grounds for a fruitful combination. Yeah. I think we are now heading to at least a four-party coalition and possibly even five, depending on uh, how small the, the smaller parties remain because all the constructive uh, parties uh, are pulled at less than 10 seats, right? So, yeah quite small so uh, it is uh, very plausible I think that uh, this record will be broken in uh, in the coming months yeah we will have a more, more have a, a bigger coalition we've ever had before three has kind of been standard hasn't it I mean, usually it's, it's three yeah. it's been until Ritter arrived three three parties was kind of uh, quite normal but uh, 
Yeah, Rutte, of course, had his first cabinet was a two-party coalition, but it was a minority supported by Hit Wilders. His second was two parties as well, and his last was four parties, so he's never had a three-party coalition. Yeah, four parties isn't uncommon, especially in the first uh, first few cabinets after World War II. That has to do, of course, with the merging of, of a couple of smaller parties to form the CDA. So those were three three parties, I think. And so CDA, you can count it as three parties, actually. Yeah. Uh, but for example, the cabinet before the Second World War, mm. that is uh, the cabinet de Geer II, they had five parties and, uh, and yeah, a lot of parties before that as well. So um, yeah, it depends a bit on, on the time periods you're looking at but as you said generally speaking three or four parties that was uh, that was uh, not uncommon. Yeah and if you go into uh, regional politics where it's even more for splintering then you quite commonly see yeah. like uh, five or six parties I think the Hague's new coalition is a six party coalition I think uh, yeah. Brabant province uh, because the BBB dropped out of the coalition talks they ends up with a six party coalition as well the most extreme example I could find recently was uh, in uh, Nordvag they tried to put a new coalition together after the, the coalition on Nordvag council collapsed they actually collapsed because uh, over the funding of a uh, a row over the funding of a swimming pool uh, a swimming pool burnt down. They wanted to rebuild it, but then the Fefe Day at the last minute wanted to also uh, tag on a sports hall. They wanted to build a sports hall and with the swimming pool. Oh, yeah. And because of that, the other parties in the coalition said no, so it collapsed. And so there were talks to form a new coalition with, do you know how many parties? Yeah, it must be larger than, than yeah, six parties. Yeah, it was eight. Uh, eight party coalition. Eight, yeah. eight parties, yeah. yeah. But yeah, they couldn't yeah. agree, yeah. so mm. the talks are broken down again and they're trying to find... Mm another coalition yeah. up there so good luck to the bold politicians and negotiators up in Nordvag trying to untangle that one yes what's also typical on coalitions in local governments is that uh, they very often uh, bring in more parties on board than mathematically necessary for majority uh, in, in local government they they want as, as as much common ground as possible so sometimes you see five or, or six parties uh, even though it's not necessary for a majority yeah and often they sort of pull in a couple of uh, independent members don't they into the coalition yeah. as well so it's sort of often yeah. five parties plus two independent MPs or something if you'd like to become a patron of the Dutch News Podcast and join our Monster Coalition, log on to www.patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash dutchnewsnl. The government's response to the coronavirus outbreak was too inflexible and failed to evolve as the pandemic dragged on. That was the main conclusion of the last of three reports by the Dutch Safety Board, the OVFE, reviewing the period from March 2020 to September 2022. COVID was initially a healthcare emergency, which threatened to overwhelm the hospitals, and the government's immediate priority was to ensure there were enough intensive care beds. But after the initial wave of infections, the government failed to change its strategy to reflect the fact that it was an emerging social crisis on multiple fronts. Ultimate responsibility for managing the pandemic was left in the hands of the healthcare minister throughout, which meant associated problems like the impact of school closures, social isolation, and the postponement of other healthcare, such as cancer treatment, received insufficient attention. So one of the purposes of the Safety Board's review was to make recommendations for future crises. What did it recommend? Yeah, the OFFA said the government should review its aims and targets periodically to make sure they uh, were in line with the situation on the ground, and it needed to communicate its reasoning better to, to keep the public on side. One of the criticisms mm. was that in the late stage of the pandemic, uh, the aims uh, were often unclear and uncontradictory. We had things like Dunson met Janssen, right, where sort of vaccination was tied to being able to go out to sort of dancing again, when those are two completely unrelated yeah. things, really. 
that kind of confusion, that muddying of the waters, stoked public unrest and resistance to you know, the measures, especially we saw at the evening curfew, right, which sparked riots in a few towns. Yeah. They pointed out that ultimately, uh, because we live in a democratic society, the success of the government strategy depends on whether people are prepared to comply with uh, restrictions that are often uncomfortable or awkward for them, like social distancing and uh, wearing masks. Hmm. Uh, did the uh, OVV have other conclusions? Yeah, its uh, first report um, looked at the first six months of the pandemic and that found that the Netherlands was poorly prepared and was so focused on stopping the uh, situation in the hospitals breaking down that uh, we had uh, what was called a silent disaster in nursing homes because people were either sent back to mm. nursing homes or not transferred out of nursing homes where the infection was running wild, staff didn't have protective clothing and a lot of old people sadly died. The second report criticised the rollout of the vaccination programme, which was hampered by the decision uh, initially to put family doctors in charge of giving the jabs. Uh, But, of course, uh, that plan had to be abandoned because the vaccine of choice was the Pfizer vaccine, which needs to be kept at minus 70 degrees. And Hmm. your average GP surgery doesn't have a fridge that can do that. So we needed to set up a network of large vaccination centres. And that took a lot of time and delayed the start of the process. The OFFA also said health boards were hamstrung by concerns about privacy legislation. Now, Chairman Chris Van Dams noted that the GGD Health Board Network and the statistics agency, CBS, spent six months in the middle of a healthcare crisis arguing about what data they could share. Now, you might remember that the the numbers on the dashboard, right, for how many people had died of coronavirus were completely yeah. unrealistic. When the CBS finally compiled the figures from death certificates, and that was usually six months or so later, you found that sort of the number of people who'd actually died was about 40% higher than the running total. And Van Damme mm. said, we need to make real progress in this area, something that other countries with the same regulations appear to be better at doing. An extremely rare and endangered Kemp's Ridley sea turtle, caught by fishermen off the coast of Walcheren in Zeeland, on Friday is recuperating at Diergaarde Blijdorp Zoo in Rotterdam. Uh, the zoo is the only place equipped to accommodate the sea turtle, which has to be quarantined for the next few weeks. I know, oh, uh, they're bringing back quarantine. <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> going to say that, yeah, it's uh, corona all over again. Um, it will then be transferred to the zoo's Oceanium fish tank, where it will be on public view, before being returned to its natural habitat in the Gulf of Mexico next year. Boeer, named after the ship that caught him in its nets, is doing well and is alert, the zoo said. Cam's Ridley sea turtles are one of the rarest turtle species in the world, and a smaller sea turtle growing to no more than 75 centimeters in length. Young Cam's Ridley sea turtles are apt to lose their way and end up on northern shores. This is the seventh turtle of its kind to be found on Dutch shores. Um, the first one was found in 1953, I just read. Two of them were survived and were successfully returned to the Gulf of Mexico, which is the turtle's sole habitat. Um, so so, uh, so if their natural home is the Gulf of Mexico, how on earth do they end up here? Do they get on board a ship by accident or something? Were they stowaways? <laughs> Uh, now, if they were on board of ships, they would be found in the harbor of uh, Flushing, yeah. I think. Yeah, unless they were hiding inside a uh, big consignment of cocaine, because then they would get through unnoticed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, they, they just ca- get uh, caught up with the Gulf yeah, Stream, okay. I think. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, they uh, yeah they are too small to, to yeah. escape that uh, that yeah. current, I think. And then uh, yeah they end up in the, in the Netherlands. Apparently, it happens quite hmm. often, but uh, yeah, usually they die right. uh, along the way. So uh, most. Uh, uh, beachings are dead small yeah. turtles but uh, yeah this one survived and it seems to be doing well so uh, yeah it's uh, it has a lot to, to talk about uh, uh, to his friends once he returns to the Gulf of Mexico I think. yeah he's, he's got some great stories to tell it's like a Dutch finding Nemo with a turtle yeah I was going to say <laughs> that yes 
Luckily for him, he hasn't seen uh, Almere. Yes. Otherwise, he uh, would have been a very traumatic... Uh, yeah, trip. see Almere and die. Sports news now, and uh, a lot has been said about the Dutch cricket team's World Cup campaign, but um, one thing's for certain, they've provided plenty of drama. Mm-hmm. After the miracle of uh, Dharam Salah, where they sensationally beat South Africa, the Netherlands were, and there's no point mincing words here, on the wrong end of a mauling by Australia on Tuesday. The Australians made a strong start with the bats. Uh, David Warner scored his second successive century, helped by a missed run-out uh, when he was on 32, and a flying catch by Wolf van der Merwe, which unfortunately just scraped the ground as he came to land, which meant uh, Warner was able to bat on. It looked as if the Dutch might be engineering another spectacular comeback when two quick wickets fell, reducing the Aussies to 267 for five, but then in came Glenn Maxwell, who smacked the Dutch bowlers around like a batch of new herring. His 106 of 44 balls took the Australians to 399, and in reply the Dutch mustered a paltry 90 on what was seemingly a very strong batsman's wicket. After Vikram Singh was dismissed for early for 25, the Netherlands' lower order crumbled, with Adam Zampa rattling through the last four batsmen for the loss of just one run. Australia's 309-run win was the biggest winning margin in the history of the World Cup. Mm. Maxwell scored the fastest century ever in one-day cricket, and poor old Bastelada clocked the worst ever set of one-day bowling figures. In fact, he took the title off uh, Adam Zampa uh, on the Australian team. Ah. He took two wickets at the cost of 115 runs. And that, combined with a narrow loss to Sri Lanka on Saturday, has pretty much snuffed out Dutch hopes of making it to the semi-finals. But the next three matches coming up are against Bangladesh, Afghanistan and England. And that last one looks like it's going to be a sort of wooden spoon decider now, with England in just terrible trouble in this tournament. And if the Dutch can win two of those three games, and all of them are winnable, I think, I'd say they can still look back on a pretty successful tournament. So uh, Bas de Lede will at least be glad he isn't uh, Maurice Stein. Yeah, um, Ajax's head coach uh, bowed to the inevitable this week uh, after a frankly abysmal start to the season for the 36 times champions. The final straw is a 4-3 defeat on Sunday to Utrecht after Ajax had come back from 2-0 down to go 3-2 up and then still managed to uh, give away two late goals. That dropped them to 17th place in the Eredivisie, only fallen dumb are below them. And uh, that confirms their worst ever start to a league season. It is, uh, for the people who are unfamiliar with Dutch uh, football teams, it is as if uh, FC Barcelona uh, ends up in the almost last place in the in the, yeah, in the uh, exactly. Spanish... It, it's, uh, it's as if Manchester United uh, uh, were in danger of relegation, or Manchester City, yeah. Yeah, which hasn't happened for, well, about uh, 40 years. So yeah, it, yeah, it, it is pre- it's pretty unprecedented. Um, and uh, yeah, um, Stein's record shows two wins in 12 competitive matches during his uh, five months at the helm of the club. And obviously the whole season's been marred by hooliganism Yeah, off the field. Uh, the match against Feyenoord had to be stopped and uh, finished in an empty stadium because fans were throwing objects onto the pitch. And of course, uh, Stein himself was embroiled in a deep feud with the former director of football, Sven Mislintat. Now, Mislintat bought a string of substandard players who Stein then had to somehow integrate into his team. And when he failed, Mislintat uh, said the coach should be sacked. In the end, it was the German himself who was sacked uh, because it turned out one of his summer transfers uh, was brokered by an agent he had an undeclared business relationship with. But that was too late for Stein, who told acting CEO Jan van Hals that he doubted if he was the right man in the right place. Um, yeah, he's not very uh, very quick to, uh, to, to realise these kind of things, apparently, yes. Yeah, but he said, well, for five months, I mean, it's, uh, I think that the answer was uh, sort of written for him, really. It was in the tea leaves, wasn't it, when he went, oh, to, yeah. went in for the meeting. 
Assistant coach Head Vegas Maduro has taken charge of the team. I don't know if he's going to have a, a scale model uh, um, uh, <laughs> version of the team. Yeah. You're referring to uh, this miniature, what is it, theme park in The Hague? Maduro Dam, the, the model village in, in The Hague. Smallest municipality of the Netherlands. Do you know who the mayor is? The mayor of Maduro Dam? Uh, I've forgotten. Princess Amalia. Ah, yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, yes, yeah, so Hedvigas Maduro has taken charge of I wonder of if she, if she uh, transfers her, her tiny salary she gets from uh, from this uh, major <laughs> ship uh, back to the theme park. I, I'm I don't know, maybe that. she pays out like one, what was the scale again? It's an exact scale. It's 1 to 16 or something. 125, I think. Or 25. 120, yeah. 125. Or 28, yeah. possibly. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if she donates 128th of her salary to cover her costs as yeah. uh, mayor of Maduro Dam. Anyway, Hedvigas Maduro has taken charge of the team on an interim basis, starting with a 2-0 defeat in the Europa League to Brighton and Hove Albion. So not an auspicious beginning for him. How about the other Dutch clubs in Europe? Yeah, mixed fortunes for them. Feyenoord had a, a pretty impressive 3-1 win at home to Lazio. Uh, Santiago Jimenez scored twice, and that result puts them top of Group E after three matches. Atletico Madrid and Celtic drew two all in the other match in that group. PSV, though, they're still struggling. They're bottom of their group um, and still looking for their first win after they drew one all at French club Lens. Peter Boss said the team will need to win the return match in Eindhoven now in two weeks' time, but they're not out of it because Arsenal beat Sevilla to go top of the group. They're one point ahead of Lens, was um, Sevilla, and have two points, which is the same as PSV. PSV are likely to get hit by UEFA, though, after their fans were involved in violent clashes in the centre of Lens and in the stadium during the match. A small section of fans tore up seats and threw flares at the home fans. Last year, the club was fined €40,000 and their fans were banned from travelling to one-away match following similar scenes against Arsenal. Meanwhile, in the Conference League, Azad Alkmaar lost 4-1 at home to another English Premiership side, Aston Villa. And uh, as we exclusively revealed uh, last week, the speed skating season is underway. Yeah, apparently we are um, contractually obliged uh, to, to talk about this, I understand. The World yes. Cup season's begun with uh, Sandra Felsabur. Uh, she was expected to tear up the oval over the 1,000 metres in short track, but it didn't happen for her in the opening race in Montreal. Uh, she was uh, classified fourth after she fell. But her younger sister, mm. Michelle, uh, had even worse fortune in the 1500 metres. She was in the B final, but the race was stopped after three of the five skaters fell over. But then she was disqualified for causing the crash. Uh, so oh. that was the end of that. Uh, Olympic champion Susanna Skilting has chosen to sit out the start of the season. She's blaming overtiredness. And uh, she says her main focus is the World Championships in uh, Rotterdam and in March. And I see that this weekend at the TR Stadium here, Fein is the first kind of qualifying round for uh, this season's uh, World Cup tournament, uh, I believe. Okay. So, yeah, if you're up in the Fein, check out the impressive uh, National Skating Arena. Yeah. Uh, going back to, to cricket for, for one yeah, moment, yeah. Um, especially the BBC, I think, had a hard time spelling uh, one of the Dutch <laughs> players' names, right? Yeah, yeah, you picked up on this, yeah. yeah there was um, uh, Siebrand Engelbrecht, um, yeah. who's uh, been promoted to number four batsman after playing quite well in the last couple of games but yeah I, I was following the EBBC live commentary or the live text commentary and literally every time they mentioned Engelbrecht they spelled his name in a different way in fact there was one <laughs> message or there's one update in which they actually managed to get his name wrong in two different ways in the space <laughs> of about 25 words so yeah. but I noticed how I tweeted about it and I think since then they seem to have started spelling it correctly so hopefully they okay, copied good. and pasted uh, yes. the correct spelling and we'll be using it from now on 
That's uh, all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. Uh, my thanks to Gordon Derek, and we'll be back next week. You know what's fun about uh, Maduro Dam? It is um, it's just funny that uh, uh, all the all these um, uh, companies and governments they, they they all take it very seriously. For example, um, uh, Rijkswaterstaat, uh, the 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 government's infrastructure agency, they uh, they had a a roaring um, press release uh, the other week uh, saying that. Um, uh, they were proud to have opened a new uh, motorway in the Netherlands, and uh, yeah, they 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 uh, drag on like they would normally do about this kind of stuff, and then it, and then they reveal to be it is revealed to be uh, a, a miniature motorway in in Maduro Dam, the shortest motorway in the Netherlands with only uh, what was it uh, 50 meters or something, the A52 it's called. Yeah, there are also billboards with the Mono and the Bob campaign, and it has dynamic uh, uh, route information panels. They also have some uh, some. Uh, some road workers on the side.